Let's take our Bibles and turn back one more time to Revelation chapter 3. We're in the final study of our seven series in which we have been studying the churches in the book of Revelation and seeing how they stand as a uh, picture of the spiritual condition of believers and the spiritual condition of churches. Now you remember, just as a really quick recap, four of the churches um, were, were some good, but overall they had uh, some issues in being weak and worldly and, and just not being who they were supposed to be spiritually. And they were warned by the Lord in a large part to repent and to change. Then we saw two churches that were faithful to the Lord, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna was in a lot of spiritual opposition, uh, and Philadelphia was really a strong church, as we'll talk about in a minute. They were being encouraged uh, to be strong and faithful and to continue to persevere. And then there was this one last church that we've probably heard about many times, the church in Laodicea. Remember that these were literal churches in first century Asia Minor, what's now pretty much Turkey, Um, And then um, they also stand as a representation of the church throughout the different ages since 90 AD when John wrote this up until Christ comes. The last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, we studied Philadelphia two weeks ago, Laodicea today, those two churches represent the current time. So from about 1945 to 1950, up until Jesus comes back, this this is a description of of what the church looks like. And you say, well, there's two different descriptions. That's because there are really two different churches of Jesus Christ right now. One is represented by Philadelphia, which was a spirit-filled, godly church where believers were passionate about the Lord, where they were really living for Him, where, where things were going great. Laodicea, by stark contrast, was just the opposite. It was full of selfish, apathetic people who were actually harming the cause of Christ, even though in their minds they thought they were doing justice to the cause of Christ. And as we said two weeks ago, the Lord doesn't provide any middle ground. There's no, well, we're kind of doing okay, church. There's no, well, we're, we're trying really hard, church. There is the spirit-filled, passionate, in love with the Lord, standing for Christ and living for Him, church, and then there's everybody else. So we need to understand this morning that, that God has given us these churches to analyze ourselves individually and to analyze ourselves as a church. And the Spirit of God wants to convict us of anything that has the scent of Laodicea. Anything that has the characteristics of this church. He doesn't want us living like Laodicea in light of the resurrection. He wants us living like the church in Philadelphia. So these are kind of cautionary words from the Holy Spirit to us in 2017 in Wisconsin to to become the believers and the church that God has called us to be and to make sure that we don't slip into some kind of spiritual apathy and indifference that we're going to see this morning. Now when we read this text in a moment, on first glance, if we didn't know all that background and we didn't know what this was about, we would probably read this and hear Jesus say, this is disgusting to me. This is repulsive to me. How you're living is is making me sick to my stomach. And we might say, well, that's about the world. That's about people that that deny Christ and hate Christ and don't want anything to do with Christ and 
and, and ridicule him in our culture. But it's not. It's about people that say they know God, that say they know Christ, but there's no passion. They're half-hearted at best. They're, they're indecisive spiritually. They don't really want to commit. They don't really want to give their hearts. And they're kind of treading this, this line between two worlds. And that's scary. One of the scariest verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't know who you are. So this is a hard message this morning, but we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to really help us and really encourage us and challenge us. But, but this is a message that's going to go right to the heart, and we're going to have to analyze. If I claim I know Christ, if I claim I have a relationship with Christ, am I walking a spiritual fence? Am I content in myself and content in kind of being spiritual but worldly, spiritual but worldly? Or am I really on fire for Jesus Christ? Now, unfortunately, the, the church today, especially in the United States, really resembles Laodicea in many ways. And we've talked about this a hundred times. I don't want to belabor it, but let me just kind of recap it in one sentence. The church, especially in America today, is, is weak in biblical theology. It's uninvolved in prayer. It's confused about its mission, and it's ineffective in ministry, especially in terms of evangelism and discipleship. I read some stats the other day, I don't know how many years, I think a couple years ago, and the person said that 20% of all church members never pray, 30% of church members never attend church, 40% never give, 50% never attend any form of Bible study, 70% never give to missions, 80% never go to prayer meeting, 90% never have family worship, and 95% of believers in churches have never led somebody to Jesus Christ. Now, if those are at, at all remotely true, that's shocking. But it probably shouldn't surprise us. And we have to look at ourselves and we have to say, what percentage is true of me? Because the problem in Laodicea is that they weren't self-aware. They didn't know there was a problem. They thought that, that they could... Uh, kind of live for themselves, and that things that they thought about themselves spiritually were true when actually the opposite was true. And as believers, we really need to be self-aware instead of blindly self-satisfied. That's where the Spirit of God comes in. That's where when we spend time in the Word of God, when we spend time confessing our sin, when we spend time in prayer in His presence, He will use those vehicles the, the word of God, prayer, and his direct statement to us to, to convict us, to challenge us, to refine us, to make sure that we're not blinded to what's going on in our lives as we confess our sin and say, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. God will then refine us and show us there's that part of your life that you're not living for me. And you may hide it and kind of forget about it, but it's serious and we've got to deal with it. As we open ourselves up to the Lord to do that, He will shape us. But if we don't do that, we're going to stay like the Laodiceans. And I came to a very strong conviction this week that no believer should ever be satisfied with where they are spiritually. 
No believer should ever be satisfied with where they're spiritually. You say, that's a little harsh for a beautiful April morning, Paul. It's a little over the top. But even the Apostle Paul said, I'm still struggling. The things that I know I should do, I don't do. The things that I know I should do, I shouldn't do, I do. And, and, and he actually says in Romans, I'm a wretched man. Now, we just sang that in, in Amazing Grace. I, I saved a wretch like me. I didn't mean to think about that. We planned the songs this morning. But we are a wretch. Everybody say, I want to hear it. I'm a wretch. Yeah, we are. Because before Jesus, we were worthless. We were valuable in God's sight. That's why he sent Christ. But in terms of spirituality, in terms of anything good, we're a wretch. That means there's nothing good. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We have no chance. Paul says that even as a strong believer who's the minister to the Gentiles, who's leading more people to Christ than we will ever think about, he says, I know I'm not righteous on my own. I know that I'm a wretch, and I'm only delivered by the grace of God. And the grace of God is awesome, and it's life-changing, and it's wonderful. But he also says in Romans 6, it is not a license to sin. Why would we go back? Listen, we just celebrated the resurrection last week, right? Remember? Remember, You were here, right? The resurrection, celebrated, praise the Lord, happy Easter, all that. Now, why would we go back to our wretched life that we lived before Jesus when we know the resurrected Jesus? Not only is that foolish and dangerous, but it's the height of ingratitude for what God's done for us. So instead of self-satisfied and self-centered, we should be fully content in the Lord, fully confident in our faith, fully committed to Christ. But we also should be fully convinced that we are not yet like Christ. Because the enemy is going to say, you're fine. You're doing enough. You're good enough. You got saved. It's all good. And we have to be concerned, and I mean this, that we would ever do anything that would harm the gospel or that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? If you're a Christian, guess what? You bear his name. So I cry every time I sing that song, what a beautiful name it is, what a wonderful, what a powerful name it is. And I think, oh, I'm so glad for Jesus. And then I've got to tell myself, you know what, tomorrow morning I bear his name as I go out and talk to people, meet with people and interact with people. And as people watch my witness and as people watch me drive and as people do whatever, they're, they're looking and they're saying, that person has the name of Christ on them. Are they representing that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name? Or are they doing damage? See, there's always more room for spiritual growth and maturity. There's always more of a need to deny our pride and to surrender ourselves to the Spirit. There's always space for more of the Holy Spirit to fill us. How many know that's true? There's always more space for the Holy Spirit to fill. The problem with the church in Laodicea, and we're going to read in a second, is they didn't feel any of that. They were self-satisfied. They were overconfident. There was no heart. There was no passion. There was no zeal. There was no fervency. They just really didn't seem to care. And notice in chapter 3, verse 14, 
how the Lord describes this. Let's read it. It's an angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth because you say, I'm rich and I've become wealthy and have no need of anything. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may become rich and white garments so that you would clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes I will grant him to sit down with me on the throne, so I will also overcame, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice the one that is addressing this church, it's in verse 14, is the one described as the amen. We say amen, praise the Lord, amen. That means it's the truth. That means so be it. That means it is exactly as it is. So the one who is the is as it is, who's speaking the words of truth, who is described as the true and faithful witness, now he's speaking in a way to this church and to believers and to us this morning with, with no confusion, no missing words, no equivocation about what is being said. He says this is the truth. And when he talks to Laodicea, look back at it, there are no positives. It's the only church where he doesn't say anything good about it. It's all negative. And he says there are two significant problems that are here. One, you're spiritually lukewarm. And two, you're clueless about it. You're spiritually lukewarm and you are clueless. You don't have an understanding of your true spiritual condition. Now, we probably all know what lukewarm is, but let me kind of illustrate it from my own experience. I really love cold drinks. Like, you can't put enough ice in the glass for me. It just, just in fact, I have a weird thing. I, I buy ice. I don't like ice in the fridge. My family thinks I'm a little weird, but it's my only vice in life. $2 a week, I buy ice, Okay. I love the, the different, I'm, I'm like a weird about ice, I'm a nerd about ice, like it has to be a certain shape, and has to be clear, and whatever, whatever, okay? I love ice. I particularly love iced tea, and you guys know by now that usually I'm carrying around a, ch a cup from Chick-fil-A, right? Because the, the Chick-fil-A cups, they're, they're styrofoam, and they keep the tea cold for a long time, so I get their cups, and I make my own tea at home because it's cheaper, and, and, and I walk around with an iced tea all day. Well, there was one day when we had actually stopped at Chick-fil-A and we had gotten some food and, and some iced teas and we had a few cups in the van. I went out into the store, came back out. I was thirsty. I reached for my cup, not realizing that it was a cup that was there from a few days before. Now, instead of a nice, refreshing, cold, happy, tasty gulp of fresh iced tea, I want some right now. Somebody go, oh, they're closed today. Can't go get me one. Instead of that, I tasted a nasty, diluted, 
lukewarm sip of something that no longer qualified as iced tea. Because the liquid had sat there for a couple days, and as, as, as hard as that cup tried to keep it cold, it was working against nature. And the lemon that was in there, you know, if a lemon sits in something for a while, it kind of pollutes the tea, and, and the sweetener had kind of become bitter as it sat there in that dull liquid and became warmer. And it was so surprising and so gross and so horrible that I literally opened the door and spit it out on the sidewalk. Real classy, right? There's my pastor. Look at him. <laughs> Hi, pastor. How you doing? Laodicea was that to the Lord. That, that's when he looked at them. He said, you're not hot and you're not cold. And your lukewarmness, this is some of the strongest words the Lord uses in the Bible. Your lukewarmness is offensive and disgusting to Jesus who sacrificed himself for you. Can you imagine if Jesus is looking at you this morning or looking at me or looking at this church saying, you're lukewarm. In light of the resurrection, I, I pray that that never describes us. Think about all the time and expense and effort and planning Churches spent preparing for last Sunday. Just our little church, we, we spent a lot of time trying to get the screen going, trying to get the projector right, making sure the music was, was all set, making sure Scott did a nice job practicing with his band. And, and, and I studied for a long time, wanting to make sure the message was really from the Lord. Some people call Easter the Super Bowl. It's not a term I love, but, but I get it. But what happened on Monday? We gathered Sunday, oh, the Lord is risen, Jesus is alive. We said it a bunch of times, we yelled it, everybody was happy, it's a beautiful day, we walked out. What happened Monday morning? Did we forget the joy of that morning? What will, what will happen in, in, in June? What will happen in October when we're not thinking about Resurrection Sunday? When we're thinking, well, that next year, I think Easter's in April 12th or something, so, so we'll plan ahead for that. Are we just as overwhelmed today as we were last week? And how can someone who believes in Jesus being alive be dull and indifferent spiritually? See, the problem in Laodicea was that their condition was weak. And I, I think there were a couple reasons for that. I'll do these quickly. I think there was no conviction. They didn't really believe in Jesus if they showed no passion for him, if there was no fruit. Because the Bible says, by your fruit you shall know that somebody loves the Lord. So there was no conviction, there was no desire, they weren't going to take a stand for the Lord. And if that's us, we should never wonder why we're not doing very well, and why life doesn't make sense, and why we're not content. Because at the root of that is not having conviction about the Lord. There was also no commitment. They, they couldn't be committed to the Lord if God's saying, you make me want to vomit. They just wavered back and forth. Like I was down in Chicago yesterday watching the lake and it's really windy and the waves were white caps on the lake and they were crashing into the, into the, the retaining wall. And I thought, that's, that's what a lot of my spiritual life can be like, just going back and forth and back and forth, never making any progress, no purpose. They also didn't care about it. Didn't bug them. They, they didn't 
worry about their neglect. They weren't having revival meetings. They weren't having prayer meetings. They weren't saying, you know what? We're not living right. We better get back in the Word. We better do what the apostles did in Acts 2, meet every day and, and, and kind of get this right. They, they didn't get it. They, they didn't understand. They had seen the truth. They knew the truth. They had heard the commission. But there was no fire. And there was no compassion. They didn't have a heart for the lost because if they had a heart for the lost, they wouldn't have lived this way. We get concerned about the world, what's going on in Russia and China and North Korea and the Middle East, and we're concerned about how it's going to affect our lives. But it hit me. The Lord really convicted me yesterday. Am I burdened about that because I'm worried about what's going to happen with my family and my future? Or am I worried about that because it means Christ is coming back any moment and there are going to be billions of people that go to hell because they've never never trusted in Christ, which burdens me more. It's easy to be lulled to sleep in this country by the abundance and the privilege that we have. And that was the problem in Laodicea. See, Laodicea, everything Jesus says is for a purpose, right? So, so when he says you're lukewarm, that was something they especially understood. Way more than Sardis, Philadelphia, Pergamum, Smyrna, that all those cities didn't understand lukewarm like Laodicea was. You say, how do you know that? I know that because of the location of the city. All of the water in Laodicea came from an above-ground system called an aqueduct. How many know what an aqueduct is? I should have had a picture on the screen this morning. Aqueduct was a big series of arches that the Romans built. The Romans were great architects. They figured out that the keystone would hold the weight so you could build arches. So when you see the Colosseum in Rome, it's just a series of arches, one stacked on top of each other. It's, a, it's an architectural uh, just feat that's beyond anything. So the Romans would build aqueducts, big series of bricks in arches throughout the countryside, and they would pour the water, and the water would go from one city to the next. Well, in Laodicea, they brought in water from two sources, from the icy water on top of the Phrygian mountains, which were glacier, which were snow-capped, and then they brought in hot springs from Colossae. The problem is that it didn't matter which source they got the water from, because by the time it got to Laodicea, hear it now, it was lukewarm and tasteless. And history says that it was so kind of gross and tepid, like my warm Chick-fil-A tea, that it literally made them nauseous to drink it. Do you get the point God's making here? God always teaches us that's in our experience. So he says, Laodicea, you get this more than Ephesus. You get this more than Philadelphia. You understand lukewarm, because when you try to get water, everything you get is, is not hot, and it's not cold. It's not soothing. And it's not refreshing. It just makes you want to puke. And here the Spirit says, look at verse 17. That makes you wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now take the first two words together. They were wretched and miserable which literally means they were afflicted and pitiful. They were spiritually sick, they were lacking in contentment, and they were spiritually unhealthy. There was no strength, there was no vitality, and it actually didn't bother them. 
if you were to describe this morning how you feel spiritually, I'm not talking emotionally, I'm having a bad day, I'm in Christ. I'm talking comprehensively, spiritually. How do you feel this morning in terms of your spiritual health and maturity and power? Don't answer. What would you say? I thought about this in terms of my son Jacob and where he was a couple years ago. He usually didn't feel good. When he ate, he'd get a stomach ache. And he generally didn't feel very healthy. Excuse me. Then we were having a discussion with my family when we were in North Carolina. And my, my nephew is, is very gluten intolerant. And he said, maybe you're gluten intolerant. Maybe you need to go gluten free. And Jacob, in July, I think it was two years ago, maybe three, he, he decided he was going to change what he ate. And, and you've witnessed it. You've seen the complete change. He's stronger. He's happier. He rarely feels bad. And he's so thin it makes me sick. All because he changed what he took into his body. And then he said, hey, I'm feeling better. And he took it to the next level. And he said, I'm going to stop eating red meat. And I'm going to stop eating junk food. And I'm going to stop eating sugar. I respect his commitment. I wish I could do this. And he feels even better. And when he occasionally breaks and eats some sugar or some junk, he feels miserable. See, changing what he was feeding himself literally transformed him physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. Now, here's the spiritual principle. What we take in spiritually determines whether we are healthy and strong and content or like the Laodiceans, whether we're sick and weak and miserable. And it's not hard to figure out. If you hang out on a regular basis with people that don't love the Lord and they're crass and worldly and, and profane, that's going to affect you. If you fill yourself on a regular basis with drugs or alcohol, that's going to affect you. If you expose yourself to impure media, and there's plenty of it, it will affect you spiritually. Or we can fill our minds with what is pure and holy and right and true and honorable. See, we can't be filled with the Spirit if we're already full of spiritual garbage, right? You, you can't cram the Spirit. They only give me one trash can in Racine. So I cram my garbage in because we produce a lot of garbage. And on Thursday night, I'm like shoving it down and shoving it down. The, the can's full of garbage. Now I can't pour flowers into there. If I'm full of spiritual garbage in my heart and mind, how do I expect the Holy Spirit to invade and purify me and, and make me like Christ? Because there's junk in there. That junk's got to be removed. And then the Holy Spirit moves in. Then the Holy Spirit, look back at the text one more time. We're going to pray in a minute. He makes some very specific and unusual statements in confronting Laodicea's problems. And these are by no means accidental. Because Laodicea was known for its wealth and its medicine and its trade. So you can see that in the text. The Lord is using direct correlations to their physical and material success to then confront their spiritual deficiencies. 
Laodicea was on the Lycus River. Who cares, right? Well, the Lycus River made it a, a significant trade route. So quickly, Laodicea became one of the most important commercial cities in, in Asia Minor. In many ways, their prosperity and their privilege parallels our own country. But while they were materially wealthy, Jesus calls them spiritually poor. And while they developed medicine for, for solving eye problems, Jesus says, you're spiritually blind. And while they were known for clothing and commerce, Jesus says, you're spiritually naked. There is no way the irony of that would have been lost on them. See, in terms of wealth, Laodicea had become a major banking center. It was known for arts and literature, but it was mainly known as a place of trade. And that opened the door for them to become a force in banking to the point that they actually minted their own coins. The city had been destroyed by earthquakes twice, 17 AD, the same earthquake that hit Sardis in Philadelphia. And at that time, they didn't have any money. So Tiberius, the Roman emperor, said, I'll help you rebuild the city. When the city was hit again in 60 AD, they were so wealthy that they said to Tiberius, keep your money, we'll do it ourselves. And that wealth and that prosperity and that materialism became a source of great pride. But while this was a powerful, wealthy city, their money meant nothing. Why? Because look at the text. They were spiritually poor. They were content in mediocrity. They were content in a lack of passion for the Lord. So he calls them and he calls us to seek what is spiritually valuable to only care about what is of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all the rest will be added to you. Our priorities and our values have to be in line with the word of God. They have to be in line with putting Christ first so that we will be on fire for the Lord. So they were wealthy, but they were poor. Second, they were known for their medical care for eyes. There was a world-renowned medical hospital and school in Laodicea. And the thing they were known for is they had developed two eye medicines. One was a powder that was applied to the eyes, I don't understand why, to improve eyesight. The other one was a nard. Everybody say nard because it's a great word. Come on. Nard. There you go. Nobody knows what nard is. I didn't, so I had to look it up. It was like the first essential oil. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, I get it now. Nard was what Mary poured on Jesus' feet, remember? John 11. So this nard was used as a salve to put on eyes if you had sores around your eyes. Now look back at the text again because he says you need an eye salve. Uh Uh-oh, they knew what that was, to anoint your eyes so you may see. And they may have gone, we've already got one. He's not speaking medically, he's speaking spiritually. You're blinded to what's going on. You don't care. You're not aware that that you are, are so stuck in your success that you forget that spiritually you're not walking with me. So he says you need to wake up. You need to see the spiritual reality. And if this morning you, you, you know that's there, but you can't quite get it, here's what we need to do. We need to get before the Lord, and we need to honestly examine our lives, and then we need to confess what we know and repent of it and say, Lord, search me and know me and cleanse me. And you know what? God is graciously willing to do that.
And he will do it gently, but he'll be thorough. If you really want to be cleansed, listen now. If you really want to be able to see what God wants for your life and what his plan is and how you can walk with him, you need to go before him and say, take the blinders off. I am blinded, Lord, by my sin and by myself and by my choices. I need you to put a salve on me spiritually. Holy Spirit, show me what I need to do. And then last, I know you're done, in terms of clothing and commerce, because he says you're naked, right? Laodicea was the only place in the world where there were flocks of Milesian sheep. You say, what's a Milesian sheep? I'll be glad to tell you. They were sheep that had black wool. And that black wool was very unique, and it was made into very expensive clothing and coats that were exported all around the world. So this was a source of great wealth and trade for them, but that clothing meant nothing because they were spiritually naked. They were unaware of how obvious it was that they were spiritually indifferent. So what does he call them to look at it? He says, you need to clothe yourself in righteousness. You need to deny your self-sufficiency and your self-satisfaction and start to represent the new life that you have in Christ. See, the, pro- the problem was that they were so deeply affected by their culture, they had allowed worldliness and materialism to creep in and, and corrupt them and deceive them. But that does not have to be true of us, church. That does not have to be true of us as believers. We can take practical steps to be passionate spiritually. Look back at verse 20. We'll pray. He says, I'm going to check your heart. I'm going to check your spiritual temperature. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him, and we'll die with him, and he with me. Jesus says, let's test your spiritual responsiveness. Whether you're resistant because of a lack of repentance, verse 19, and a lack of passion and zeal for me, verse 19, which makes you lukewarm. I want to throw that up because it's so nasty. Or whether you're surrendered and on fire and craving my presence. Now, the way we determine that, you and me determine that, is to seriously answer the following question. When the Lord knocks, either with conviction like we're hearing this morning, or to invite us into his presence. Do we view that knocking as annoying to the point that we kind of discount it and even ignore it? It, it, when, When we feel conviction, do we kind of say, oh, it's uncomfortable, I don't think I want to deal with that. Or when we hear him knocking, and he convicts us, and he invites us to come closer to him, is it exciting? Do we say, oh, yes, Lord, I want you to cleanse me again. Yes, Lord, I want you to to make me more like Christ. Yes, Lord, I want to be in your presence. There's nothing I want more, so I'm going to draw near to you. Which is it? Because it's one or the other. It's not, I'll get to it later. It's not, well, come in and let me make you wait for a while till I get my act together, prepare some snacks. It's either... It's like a telemarketer coming by. I am not, don't answer the door. Or it's throwing the door open and saying, Lord, I love you. I'm so glad to be with you. 
thank you for your grace and mercy. And if you need to change me, change me. Because my spiritual temper temperature is a little lukewarm. And I want to be on fire for you. I want to be in love with you. I want to trust you and obey you and serve you and live for you every single moment of my life.